only one person that listens to the uh, Rish Outcast. This is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to my solo podcast. Today, we will be presenting the last section, well, the finale of Birth of a Sidekick. Uh, in case you're somehow stuck with only this part, uh, go back and listen to the last couple episodes, and you'll get the first and second thirds and you can catch up. Anyway, uh, I will give you no further ado, and I will let you listen to the end of Birth of a Sidekick, written by yours truly, and uh, catch you on the flip side. Almost two more hours they rode, and it was almost dawn when Benny dismounted his pony and tied both horses to the post in front of the sheriff's station. Segovia had since fallen asleep, a mucousy snore replacing his menacing growls. No one was in the little sheriff's station, though the door was unlocked. There was a two-man jail cell in the back of the room, but it was vacant. Beside the door were three wanted posters, one of them pertaining to a Moises Ayala Segovia. The town outside was eerily quiet. Somewhere a phonograph was playing, and chickens clucking and a braying donkey could also be heard. The only person the boy saw was a young man, barely older than him, passed out in front of the saloon. Ben walked past him and heard noise coming from within. He entered the saloon, wincing at the myriad odors, tobacco smoke, various spirits, and dirty men that met him as he pushed past the doors. "'Excuse me,' Ben said. "'I need help.' Only a handful of men were inside, and of them only four were awake, three card players and the man tending bar. That man, also sitting sleepily, squinted at him for a moment, then yelled, Get out of here! across the bar. Please, I need the sheriff! For a moment, the bartender looked sheepish. He exchanged a look with the card players. One of the men playing cards stood up, immensely put out at the interruption. He wore a tin star on his right breast. "'I'm Deputy Whedon,' he said, a word or two slurring. "'You shouldn't be in here, boy.' "'I've been—' Ben clasped his hands, not sure where to begin. "'Lean Ryder sent me. I need the sheriff.' The deputy nodded, apparently digesting the information. Finally, he straightened his gun belt and started to cross the bar. "'Okay, just a moment.' he said, and walked past the boy, toward the back of the saloon. A moment later, he had disappeared through an adjoining entryway. "'Boy, you wait outside, you hear?' the bartender said, though softer than before. The lean rider was famous for his tipping as well as his shooting, horsemanship, and tracking. Ben stepped outside to check on his prisoner. The outlaw snored on across the street as Winchester drank from a half-filled trough. Pony looked back at him. Immediately, Ben went back to the bar, more and more nervous that something would go wrong. Something else, that was. The bartender scowled at him, then saw the large gun holstered at his side, and went back to capping bottles. "'Where did the deputy go, sir?' Ben asked, making sure he said sir instead of senor. "'Sheriff Murtry's upstairs, boy,' the bartender said. This meant nothing to Benny." but it caused the card players at the table to explode with laughter. The sheriff came down momentarily, 
a Mexican blanket around his shoulders, and his shirt mostly unbuttoned. He looked like he might have been sleeping. Still, he asked, You Mr. Cook's protege, son? More pleasantly than his deputy or the bartender. Ben had never heard the term before, so he shook his head. No, sir. The writer always treated me real decent. He was a portly, strong-looking man with a red mustache and about three hairs on his head. Very well, the man said, like in a storybook, and followed Ben out of the saloon. Outside, Segovia was swearing up a storm in both English and Spanish. Ben ran across the street to see what was the matter. Since Ben had left him, Segovia had wriggled himself to a new position, his head and shoulders now up against Winchester's saddle, his tied legs nearly touching the ground. But Ben's knots had been true. He was still firmly trussed. On the other side of Winchester, a senora was chastising Segovia in toothless Mexican. Benny couldn't understand her, she was talking so fast. When the sheriff came out to join them, the senora spat on the prisoner and turned to go, mumbling. All right, what's all the ruckus about? The lawman asked. But the woman was already on her way. Then he saw what was tied to the big horse in front of him. Besides the wound on his right eye from the rock Ben had thrown, there was a bright hand-shaped red mark across the scoundrel's cheek. Is that Mose Segovia? And is this Winchester, the lean rider's horse? Yes, sir, Ben said. On both counts. The sheriff smiled tiredly, then turned to his deputy. Whedon, run over the jail and get them barrels out of the cell. The deputy didn't run, but he did amble over eventually. Sheriff Murtry shook his head, amused at the tied man before him. <laughs> that can't be comfortable. Segovia groaned and struggled, but only managed to fart. The sheriff led the big horse right up to the front of his office door, then patted its smooth head. He turned to the prisoner. Well, Moises Segovia, I'm placing you under arrest for three counts of cattle wrestling, attempted armed robbery, public intoxication, and the defilement of a church. Ben stood next to the sheriff and spoke up. And for the murder of Jerome Cook, the lean rider. The sheriff turned around. What? Ben began to repeat himself. And then, all of a sudden... It hit the boy, all he had experienced, and the position he was now in. He started to cry, and once begun, he couldn't seem to stop. The sheriff put a meaty hand on Benny's shoulder, silently telling him it was all right to weep, especially in a situation like this. He got out his pocket knife to cut Segovia free, but waited for his deputy, not trusting the bandito alone. You can explain later he said as Deputy Whedon came out of the jail, shotgun in hand. Sales all clear. Ben sat down on a bench in the sheriff's office, his hands in his pockets. While they led the injured, mumbling man through, he stared down at the floorboards through glassy eyes. He was too wired to sleep, though he was exhausted emotionally and physically. After a while, the two lawmen came out and stood in front of the boy. The deputy yawned. Your boss sure gave that guy a wallop, kid. Sheriff Murtry held out a crisp Western Union envelope. This here's two hundred dollars, son. What? the deputy asked. You're giving the reward to him? 
You'll see that it gets to the rider, the sheriff said before Ben had to say anything. Quieter, he said. He's in behind the telegraph office with, well, you know who. Oh, Deputy Whedon said, nodding. Celebrating. Then a look of jealousy moved over his face, and he wandered back into the cell area. Ben stared at the envelope in his hand, unsure what to do with his newfound fortune. He'd never seen twenty dollars before, let alone two hundred. He was frankly surprised to have been given the reward. The sheriff could have kept it for himself. You got a place to sleep tonight? The man asked. No, sir. I'll arrange something. If you want, round ten or first thing in the morning, we can go down to the bank and deposit that. Thank you, the boy said, not sure what deposit meant exactly. What's your name? Ben Parks. You want to talk about it, Ben? Ben shook his head, but a moment later he found the story slipping from his mouth as easily as the tears had slipped over his cheeks. He sniffled and wiped his nose on his sleeve, feeling miserable and lost, reward or no reward. That there's quite a tale, Sheriff Murtry said, which made Ben think the big man thought it was only that. You don't believe me? The sheriff smiled. Somehow, I do. Maybe since now some of Mose Segovia's cousins make sense. Ben laughed in spite of the tears and wiped his cheeks once again. Sheriff Murtry hunkered down next to him and looked him in the eye. Can I give you a little suggestion? Don't let word out that Jerome Cook is dead. Let the people think that he's got his reward money and rode off in search of new sights and new deeds. Why? So they don't think I got the money and thieve it off me? Partly. But also so... <sighs> the sheriff sighed. People got to believe in something. Believe in the future. Believe that there's someone looking out for them. Maybe it's a sheriff. Maybe it's the Lord. And maybe it's a gunslinger who goes town to town looking for wrongs that need righting. You understand? Ben's eyelids seemed heavy, from fatigue as well as tears. I think so. The sheriff shifted his considerable weight and went on. People need to have a lean rider in their lives, to make them feel like doing the right thing when it gets easy to want to do the other thing. It wouldn't do for them to know that a no-good cowpie like our prisoner got the better of him, would it? I guess not, the boy said, thinking of his own shock when he realized what Segovia's single bullet had done. Let's keep it a secret for now. When you get older, if you feel the itch to tell your tale to the story writers or the newspaper men, well, maybe people will be more ready. Ben pondered that for a moment. Then the bigness of his situation returned to his mind. "'What is going to happen to me?' he asked in a small voice. The sheriff thought on it. "'Well, Ben, was it?' The boy nodded. "'Ben Parks.' "'Well, that's up to you, Ben. I'm not your pa, but if I was, I'd suggest you get your schooling. Learn a trade. Go to church from time to time. At least that's how I raise my boys.' The orphanage, you mean? Well, that's a long ways from here. Maybe you could stick around to rental for a while. 
Ben thought he'd like that. Where would I stay? he asked, though he realized that with his newly earned riches, he might could afford a nice room somewhere. I know a place in town you can room at. Rent is fair and the landlady is honest. I've still got a boy your age running around, if you want to ask advice. It sounded like a fine idea to Ben. He liked the sheriff, though he wasn't an impressive-looking man like the writer had been, which reminded him, Sheriff, I need to go back to the camp and bury my teacher. The big man nodded. Do you need help? No, though I'd borrow a shovel if you got one, sir. Certainly. Though, maybe you should have made that outlaw in there dig the grave. That's what I would have done. Ben hadn't thought of that. Actually, sir, I was too scared to untie him once I had him. Understandable, the sheriff said, looking at the boy with a mixture of warmth and frank surprise. You did a darn fine job, Ben Parks. The rider would be proud. And that was it. Benny Parks had been a sidekick for four days. Three full ones. Now he was on his own. But not alone. Somehow, whether it was God, or the guardian angels, or just blind luck, he had nabbed an outlaw and gotten himself a fortune in reward money, and learned how to tie a rope and cook frijoles. Ben contemplated what to do next, and still contemplating, made a journey into Mesa to sell Winchester, the most famous horse in Arizona. He considered keeping him, but the horse was just too big. He had his pony, which he ended up naming Goliath, even though she was a girl, and small. But she would grow up as he did. Ben had grown up a great deal already, and though he had a long ways to go before becoming the man he wanted to be, he was on the path. The future was like the wide western horizon, going off in all directions as far as a good set of eyes could see. He had so many options in front of him that he didn't know where he'd end up. But he decided he'd listen to Sheriff Murtry and go to school, get himself a proper education, then spend the rest of his many days as a lawman, maybe even one as famous as the lean rider himself. And he did. The end. All right, and there you are. That's the end of the story. And uh, as I was explaining in the very first segment, uh, I intended for this thing to be a traditional origin, not an or yeah, origin story, where they set the scene for the rest of the series. The Lean Rider and Benny Parks are going to have many, many adventures together, and you know it's a bright future out in the Wild West. Tune in next week for the further adventures of the Lean Rider. That's what it was meant to be. Uh, but as I was writing it, I just thought, you know, what if the Lean Rider died on their very first adventure? And I was going to have the Lean Rider be like in over his head and there'd be like a bunch of rustlers and outlaws or whatever. And he finally gets, uh, what's the word? 
he's ambushed or he's just uh, he's got so many bad guys that you know he pulls off some miraculous thing but it still costs him his life I think that way and of course I never wrote that part but that was just in the back of my mind of yeah that that's gonna work and then I thought oh geez you know what would be less expected is if it were a completely worthless innocuous bad guy that he brings down who ends up bringing down the lean rider. So I came up with this Segovia character who is just, he's nothing. He's not a threat, he's a drunk. And he kills the lean rider by accident. You know, it's one of those one in a million things. And a lot of times in fiction, the one in a million thing is great. And it's like, we just happened to survive. The odds were stacked against us, but we made it. How often do you see the odds against this happening were astronomical, but it went astronomically disastrously wrong? That's something I'm proud of because I I wouldn't think you would predict it. You would peg it by the way that the story is written. And part of it, you know, the advantage is that I didn't intend for it to be that when I first started it. This boy, and I wanted the boy's life to be just miserable so that he could go and have opportunities. So every child reading these stories vicariously lives the adventures of Benny Parks with the lean rider. That's, that's where it should have gone. And anyhow, nothing happens. He, he ends up teaching Ben to tie a knot, right? And that's the only thing that Ben learns. And then the writer is killed. And I shared this with Big. Uh, Big Anklevich, I think, is the only person that's ever read this. Maybe Ian, my friend, read it. But he said, well, you could have your cake and eat it too you could still have Ben go out and have adventures and eventually he could become the lean rider and nobody would know that it wasn't the same guy. And you know, this is similar to um, the Mark of Zorro, the Mask of Zorro that uh, the film with uh, Anthony Hopkins and, and Antonio Banderas. Whoa, where was that? What, that weird accent. Antonio Banderas, where Zorro is, you know, an old guy and then he's replaced by a young guy, but nobody knows that it's not the same guy. The Dread Pirate Roberts kind of thing. And so, Big's right. You could easily do that. I mean, it might even be fun to write a story where Ben is maintaining the charade that uh, the lean rider is still alive and that he's his sidekick, that he's working with him. But nobody sees the lean rider. You know, that could work. Anyway, this is the story that I wrote and uh, factually, I'm sure it's all over the place. It's, uh, I don't know anything about the actual West and, I, you know, I know that the Pony Express did not last very long. It was an experiment. 
that ultimately failed. And I feel bad because there's this tiny little reference to the Pony Express, a Pony Express writer. And I know that if I tossed that sentence out, there would be a little bit more uh, authenticity to the story. Because the, the Pony Express existed for such a short time in the West that it could only, the story could only take place during that stretch of time. And I know that like pulp novels and, 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 and the legend of the Old West was a 20th century thing, you know what I mean? Uh, we got, we started getting like celebrity outlaws and stuff like that at the very, very end of the 1800s. But by the end of the 1800s, the West was no longer the untamed land of mystery and possibility that it was. The, the railroad had gone through and, and things were civilized and there was government and there was... The, the romantic part of the Old West is usually pre-Civil War or right around the time of the Civil War. And once that ended, once the Civil War happened, things changed. But this is supposed to be a... Uh, it's supposed to be one of those pulp novel kind of adventure things. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be an actual depiction of what life was like in the West. And, you know, a lot of the Westerns that got made in my dad's time, my dad loves the Western, still to this day. He's got a channel that's just Westerns. And whoever came up with that was brilliant. They should have come up with that channel around the same time that the Cartoon Network because a lot of people from my dad's generation and, and a little bit older than him really would have enjoyed that, you know, all Western, all the time network. But yeah, he's a big fan of the Western. And because he was a child during the time when Westerns were really, really, really big, um, he has an affection for them and he, he has a the opinion that almost all Westerns were made for kids. And I, you know, because I've seen like the Clint Eastwood ones and I've seen the Searchers and I've seen, you know, stuff from later, I find that really, really hard to swallow. But the Westerns that were made during the heyday when the studios were making just tons and tons of Westerns were very simple. It was very easy to tell who the good guy and the bad guy was. They, I, I believe they were super formulaic, but he loves those. In the same way, okay, here's a parallel that's stupid, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I love the early 80s slasher horror movies. I love them. And they were very formulaic and very, usually very simple and a lot of times very badly done because Halloween came out and it was a really big hit despite not costing a lot of money. Uh, that was 1978. And in 1980, Friday the 13th came out, which was not as good a movie as Halloween. It was not as well made. It cost less than Halloween, but it was distributed by Paramount Pictures. Even Halloween was like Compass International, some independent thing. But one of the big studios distributed... Or, and may actually have produced Friday the 13th. And 
it made so much money that all you had to do between 1980 and let's say 1985 was make a movie with teenagers and a killer and it would make money. Some of those movies were made well. Some of them were just cheap cash-ins. Some of it, it was crass, the business. They knew that even if it was crap, it would make money. Not just make its money back. And see, that's partly my impression of what the Western was like, uh, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, the 50s especially. All of the studios, the movie studios, had these ranches with Western sets and horses and uh, places with a saloon and, a, and you know, ranch houses and, and a sheriff's office and, and all that stuff. And I, I have no idea. I would love to see the numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if one of these cheap Westerns came out every other week. And all of the studios were making them because it was cheap and it was easy and it was a guaranteed return on investment. And somewhere along the way, well, audiences are fickle. Audiences turned on those. I think eventually uh, studios got tired of just cranking out these B-picture westerns and they said, you know, well, we'll do some A-picture ones. We're going to put big stars in them. We're going to put our, you know, our greatest teams on them. You know, we're going to see if we can't make a ton of money doing a Western. You know, it's a, John Ford cut his teeth on the Western and as his star grew, the spotlight on the Western got brighter and brighter. And eventually, I think, I don't know what happened. It eventually collapsed in on itself. And, and you know, the slasher movie craze in the 80s eventually uh, collapsed in on itself as well. And, uh, you know, they hit a point where rather than making more than the movie previous, the Friday the 13th series started to go down. They, you know, they, they, they started trying harder on these Friday the 13th movies, you know, for there to be more gimmicks. And, you know, okay, this time Jason is going to fight somebody who has telekinetic powers. This time Jason is going to come to New York City. Jason Takes Manhattan essentially just killed that series. Uh, I just realized that I've been talking about the Western instead of uh, this story. The point I was trying to make is my dad really loved Westerns. And I don't think he would enjoy Birth of a Sidekick. He would think that it is uh, inauthentic. He would think that it is dumb. And that's okay. Maybe it is a little bit dumb. But... Like I said in the first episode about this story, you know, it's not like the other stories that I write. It's not, it's not got a supernatural angle at all. It's different. And, and it's good to try something different. It's not the only Western that I've written, but, um, you know, straight Western without <laughs> monsters and stuff. It, I think it is. That is it. Anyhow, uh, I really appreciate it if you have enjoyed this story, if you've listened to all three parts. And, and as I said before, I would really appreciate it if you would buy the story over on Amazon.com or uh, if you would like to purchase the audio version. The only difference 
between what you just heard and what you would hear over on Audible is I do have an author's note where I just talk about the making of this story. And uh, it's something that I wrote down, so it wasn't just me mumbling. The structure is going to be a little better. Might seem a little more clever. But anyway, thank you for listening to uh, this three-part Rish Outcast. And uh, let me know if anybody actually heard this. If you would like me to do more like this, splitting things up. The plan was to do it in a very short period of time so people wouldn't forget. I know myself well enough to know that's probably unlikely, but I did record these three episodes at the same time, and the plan is to edit them all at the same time. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Thank you, though, again, for going on this little trip with me, and uh, I will try and bring you something fun for next time. This is Rish Outfield. Uh, Rish Outfield casting off. Wait, not an off cast. It's the outcast. Dang. So this is Rish Outfield casting out. Good night. The podcast you have just suffered through was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music so inexpertly used in this episode. Are you insulting him or me? You.